Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading for this morning is from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, and it reads like this. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorify God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. You feeling thankful today? This week is a week in which all across this nation, people are putting an emphasis on remembering the gifts of God and giving thanks to him. And so we are going to celebrate that by eating a lot of food together after the service. You excited about that? If you haven't been over to the gym yet, it looks beautiful. Thank you. By the way, we should clap for everybody that cooked and decorated to get that celebration ready for us. Thank you for serving us. But before anything else, we want to give thanks to God for the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we just celebrated through the Lord's Supper and for the gift of his holy word. Today, the text of scripture that we just heard read to us from Luke's gospel tells a beautiful story, which is all about the authority and the power of Jesus. Jesus has power to heal And Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And this story is designed to make us ask this question. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Many of us, most of us here already identify as Christians who worship Jesus. Some of us here are probably Spiritual seekers trying to wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus? One thing that's clear to all of us is that historically there's never been any man who had a bigger impact on the history of the world. Who's more widely respected as a wise teacher. 
or as a prolific miracle worker. There's many miracle workers throughout history, but nobody like this who has so many miracles of such power that are attested by so many sources. But we have to ask ourselves, who is this man? And more specifically, we need to ask in a personal way, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? That's a question we'll answer not only with our words, but with our hearts and with our lives. And the way that we answer that question will shape the whole direction of our lives and, in fact, will determine our eternal destiny. It's the most important question you can ask. Who is this man? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? To help us think about this question, I want to set the scene and we're going to use our brains and our reason today. I'm also going to ask you to use your imagination. So can you can you flip on your imagination with me today? Let's imagine that we are with Jesus on this day. He's teaching people God's word. And the text also tells us he's healing various sick people. But it's not like the scenes that we have already encountered in Luke's gospel. He's not in a synagogue teaching a building like this that was built for worshipers to gather. Nor is he outside on a mountain or in a plain or by the Sea of Galilee. Instead, he's in somebody's home. So if it helps you, you can picture this happening in your living room of your house. Except this is 2000 years ago in Palestine and probably it's in the house of what we call a working class person. So just imagine your house, but much smaller and without air conditioning. OK, and everybody's crammed into the main room. Jesus is teaching. And as the day goes on, more and more people here, he's at the house and he's teaching and he's healing. So they're, they're coming. So you can picture it. Jesus is probably sitting on a chair. There's a few people sitting on chairs, but they wouldn't have had much furniture. So there's probably people sitting all over the floor, people standing along the walls, people standing outside trying to look in through the window so they can get a glimpse of Jesus to see him and to hear his words. It's probably getting a little tight. You can, when there's that many humans in a small space, there's a certain smell that starts to happen. Can you imagine it? What it sounds like, what it looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like. Lots of people are coming to him. He's teaching them. He's healing them. And people are coming from a lot of different places and a lot of different backgrounds. Some of them are local folks, but our text tells us in verse 17 that there's people from every village in Galilee and Judea and even Jerusalem. So there's people from near and people from far. There's people from a lot of different backgrounds, men and women, young and old, Working class people who work with their hands with jobs like fishermen and carpenters. Also what we'd call white collar folks, scribes, academics. And they're coming from a lot of different backgrounds. They're also coming with a lot of different motivations. And as we think about the motivations that they bring to this, I want you again to think about yourself. We've gathered here today to be in the presence of Jesus and to hear his word. Amen. Now, I want to ask you to picture yourself gathered in the presence of Jesus to hear his word, not in this space, but in that cramped house where Jesus was. And I want you to ask yourself, why am I here? What are my expectations? What hopes and dreams and desires am I bringing to this encounter with Jesus? Luke draws our attention to the fact that some of the people in this house are here with good motives, good attitudes, good hearts. And some of the people here in this house are there with bad motives, bad attitudes and bad hearts. The people who are here that Luke 
shows us to have wrong motivations are those described in verse 17 as the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They're described again in verse 21 as the scribes and Pharisees. I won't say a whole lot about the historical background of who these people are for the sake of time today, but really quickly I'll say these are people who were very devoted to the law of Moses. The Pharisees were a religious movement that started some 200 years before the story that we're describing today. There's probably about 6,000 Pharisees in Palestine at the time that Jesus lived. And they were a group of people who were very much concerned with being separate from the world and untainted by the world. They were against what's called Hellenization. In other words, they didn't want the Jewish community to be polluted by association with the pagan Greek and Roman cultures. Instead, they, they wanted to be people whose lives were defined by the scriptures, who lived holy lives. Now, if you put it the most positively, you could say it like this. They didn't want to be conformed to the pattern of this world. They wanted to be holy, set apart by the word of God. They were people who talked much about the kingdom of God. And their expectation was if God's people would just be holy enough to be separate from the world, to keep the law of God down to its details, then Messiah, the Savior, will come and usher in the kingdom of God, which will restore glory to Israel and overthrow all the evil powers that are oppressing us. That was their expectation. And many times, actually, when the Pharisees are arguing with different Jewish people and Jesus gets involved in the argument, he picks the side of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are right about angels and they're right about demons and they're right about resurrection and many other things. And yet we see consistently in the Gospels that there's something deeply wrong going on in the movement. For one thing, in addition to the word of God, they have accumulated a great many human traditions that are supposed to tell you how you're supposed to interpret God's word. But in fact, they are distorting the meaning of God's word and they've become very legalistic and self-righteous that they imagine holiness to be about shunning sinners. But Jesus comes and Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God in a different way. He is the holy one incarnate, but he looks it looks like God coming close to sinners. Looks like God inviting people in who are far from him. In other words, Jesus is teaching about holiness and the kingdom of God in a way that radically contradicts the Pharisees. And these individuals called scribes were scholars who were experts in the Mosaic law. Some of them would have been Pharisees. Some of them wouldn't have been. But they were people who were experts at interpreting the scripture. And they were recognized as such. And they had great influence. But the main thing Luke wants us to see today is that they have come to hear Jesus with a heart posture of skepticism. They have come to evaluate Jesus. They're imagining themselves to be in the place of judge. And Jesus is the one being evaluated. We've got to be very careful about this, church family. Sometimes we bring our questions to God, and there's nothing wrong with bringing your questions to God. God can handle your questions. Amen, church? But we can bring our questions in a heart of humility that says, God, teach me. God, instruct me. I don't understand. I'm confused. I'm doubting. Or we can bring our questions with a heart of skeptical arrogance where we imagine we're the judge and God's the one being evaluated. But let's make it clear, church family, who's the judge? Yeah, it's not us. So they've got an attitude of skepticism. They're trying to evaluate and judge Jesus. But there's a different group of people that this story asks us to focus on, which are coming 
with faith. I'm talking, of course, about the paralyzed man and his friends. Luke doesn't tell us how many friends, but Mark tells us there was four friends. So paralyzed man plus four friends equals five guys. And Jesus commends their faith. What's beautiful is almost certainly these five guys do not have a very sophisticated faith at present. They're not very well informed. These are not theologians. If you start talking to them about hypostatic union and Trinity and incarnation, they're not going to know what you're talking about. Right. But here's what they're aware of. They have a desperate need. And they believe Jesus is from God and they believe Jesus can meet their need in a way that nobody else can. So they're coming to him. And that's the posture of faith. Now, I'm asking you to picture yourself sitting in the room. You got the picture in your mind. We're all crowded in this cramped house listening to Jesus. And I want us each to ask ourselves, what's my motivation? What's my attitude? What's my heart? Am I here today to judge and evaluate Jesus to see if the gospel will fit into my vision of the world? Am I here as a skeptic? Or am I here with a sense of desperate need saying, I don't have all the answers, but I believe Jesus can help in a way that nobody else can. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, I think that most of us have at least a little bit of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law inside of us most of the time. Which is why Jesus warns his disciples, beware of the yeast of the scribe and the Pharisee. It's easy to get into our hearts this sort of arrogant, critical, self-righteous attitude, skeptical attitude, as opposed to a heart of humble faith. So if the Holy Spirit's showing you that some of that's going on in your heart, here's what I would encourage you to do. Right now, where you are, pray. You don't have to do it out loud. God can hear your thoughts, right? And just say, God, give me a right heart. God, free me from my arrogance and my self-righteousness and my skepticism. Give me a heart that sees my desperate need and that comes to Jesus with humble faith. If you pray that prayer, God will hear you and God will help you. And as we try to imitate that heart of humble faith, let's keep reading the story and see what happens. First, look at verse 18 through 19 again. And I want you to notice the tenacity of these friends of the paralyzed man. It says, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tile, through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. OK, picture this church. I, I did a little historical research this week because I wanted to picture it accurately in my head. But in this part of the world, roofs of houses were normally flat and there would often be stairs or a ladder on the outside of the house to allow you to go up on the roof. People would do things like dry laundry on the roof of the house. Sometimes they would hang out, pray on the roof of the house in the cool of the day. So I want you to picture you're one of these four guys that has have carried your friends on a mat for a while. And then you get there and there's a crowd lined up outside the house trying to peek in so you can't get in. You see some stairs or perhaps a ladder and you think, let's go up there and see if we can find a way in. Now, I got to ask a question. Has anybody ever tried to carry a sleeper sofa up some stairs in an apartment complex? You got to be determined, right? I've injured myself one or two times trying to do that. Now, imagine you've got a person and four friends trying to get up some little rickety stairs or imagine they're not stairs. It could be a ladder. Can you imagine trying to haul this guy up on a ladder? 
It takes a lot of sweat and determination just to get to the roof, right? And, and they're determined, though. They're tenacious. And then they get up there, and, and Luke uses this, this phrase that he says uh, in verse 19. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles. Now, Luke's probably writing to a Greek audience, and Greek audiences were familiar with a certain kind of roofs that had tiles. But probably it's a, like a figure of speech here referring to the fact that they're removing a section of the roof, which, which is the way Mark puts it. If you go read the story in Mark's gospel, it says they dug through the roof. Because probably in this region, the roof wasn't made with tiles proper. It was a, a bunch of beams, and then over the beams you lay a lot of sticks and a lot of dirt and pack it in to kind of make a roof there. So my point here is you can't just move the pot tile and put the tile back. It's not like that. When he says he moves, they remove a tile, it means they're taking out a chunk of the roof. And this is not something that just happens all at once. So they start digging and dirt starts falling in on the people inside. You picturing that? It's making a lot of noise. And somebody's saying, hey, what's that? And then somebody's saying, hey, they're making a hole in the roof. And then somebody's yelling, hey, stop that, right? Wouldn't you if this was your house? But they just keep going. It's going to take a while to fix this, you know, the hole that they're making. But they keep going. They keep going. They're tenacious. They're determined to get their friend to Jesus. And already we can stop. That'll preach by itself, won't it, church? Are we determined, that determined to get our friends to Jesus? They're determined. And when Jesus sees them, he does not rebuke them. When he sees their audacity, he doesn't say, why can't you wait your turn? He doesn't say, how are you going to make a hole in my friend's roof like this? What he says is verse 20. Verse 20 is beautiful. We need to pause to chew on this verse. Verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus sees their faith, which, as we've said, is is not a very well-informed faith. It's just a simple, desperate, tenacious determination to get to Jesus because he's the only one that can solve our deep problem. And when he sees their faith, he delights in it. He loves it. Jesus also accurately perceives That the man has desperate needs which are both physical and spiritual. His physical need is obvious. He's paralyzed. That's why his friends are carrying him in here, which means he can't work, which means he's dependent on others for his daily bread. It's a very difficult situation. His spiritual need is maybe less obvious, but it's much deeper. The deeper problem that he has and that all of us have is sin. And in an act of free Sovereign grace, Jesus gives the man first the thing that he needs most. Forgiveness of sin. The man here is a a stand-in for humanity. Sixteen centuries ago, a North African pastor and teacher named Cyril of Alexandria wrote this. When the Savior says to him, man, your sins are forgiven you... He addresses this to humankind in general. For those who believe in him being healed of the diseases of the soul, 
will receive forgiveness of the sins which they formerly committed. Cyril's right. Luke is telling us this story in a way that is inviting us to put ourselves in the place of this man. I asked you earlier to picture yourself sitting inside the house, but now I want to ask you to picture yourself as the man on the mat. Can you do that? This is the posture of faith. If you want to know what would it look like for me to be a person of faith, picture yourself laid up on that mat. Your friends are dragging you up on top of the roof. Your friends are lowering you down through the roof. You're worried about what everybody's going to say when you get down there. You're totally helpless and dependent in every way. And then you hear these words from Jesus. What this helps us see is this. The posture of faith is not the posture of the hero. The hero is someone who overcomes great odds by his or her own strength of will, his or her own inner resources, prowess, wit, whatever it may be. The hero rescues himself or herself or other people because of his or her own resources. But the posture of faith is not the posture of the hero. It's the posture of the beggar. And you can't get much less heroic and more beggarly than this. He's paralyzed. In every way, he's dependent. Dependent first on his friends and then especially dependent on Jesus. So if you want to imagine yourself as a person of faith, it's not necessarily a flattering picture. The the text is perhaps asking us, will we acknowledge that we are this needy? That we're this desperate, that we're this dependent first on Jesus Christ. But listen, I never would have came to Jesus if it wasn't for other people, would you? Somebody had to translate the Bible. Somebody had to copy all those manuscripts for all those centuries. Somebody had to plant a church in my country and then in my neighborhood. Somebody had to preach the gospel to me. I needed other people and I needed Jesus. If you're desperately dependent like that, could you just say amen? To be in the posture of faith is not to be in the posture of the hero. It's to be in the posture of the beggar, which is not necessarily a flattering way to imagine ourselves. But here's the thing. If you come to Jesus with that posture, just laid out and desperate, he says, your sins are forgiven you. That's the gospel. Now switch it up. Instead of imagining yourself in the place of the man, imagine yourself in the place of the friends. Jesus says, or the text says, rather, and when he saw their faith. Did you catch that? That was plural. He's talking about the faith of the friends, presumably also the faith of the paralyzed man. But the emphasis is placed here on the faith of the whole group, the friends. The faith of the friends was necessary to get this man to a place where he could encounter Jesus. And the friends are being commended for their faith. But, you know, they had some second thoughts. While they were going up, especially when the dirt started falling and people started saying, hey, stop that. And they started thinking, how much is it going to cost to repair this roof? They must have had some doubts. And yet in this moment, they hear Jesus saying, man, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine what that would feel like? These friends show us. The great opportunity that we have. To be instruments in the hand of God to help people come to Jesus who alone can heal them. Let me ask you, church, do you have friends 
and neighbors and family members who need to experience the healing power of Jesus. We all do. And we talk a lot about mission and about our petition, our participation in the mission of God here at Redemption Church. That's the first time I ever said that. (laughs) Sure, we can clap for that. We changed our name last Sunday if you missed that memo. So, but we talk a lot about mission and our participation in the mission of God. But we need to recognize to participate in the mission of God is not to be in the position of the hero or the savior. To participate in the mission of God is first to be a beggar and then to be a friend. And the kind of friend that we're being is the kind of friend who recognizes just like I desperately need a healing power and authority that can only be found in the person of Jesus. So does everybody else around me. And as I'm living by hope, longing for the world to experience the second coming of Jesus, I can also live with an active faith right now. So if we're going out sharing the gospel in our workplace, in our home, in our neighborhood, out at apartment complexes, in schools, if we're trying to make disciples, if we're growing across the nations, if we're talking about mission and doing justice and loving mercy and binding up the brokenhearted and caring for the vulnerable, the widow, the fatherless and the orphan and advocating for the oppressed. All that mission is just an expression of a friend who trusts Jesus. And we're going to be willing to do anything we can tenaciously to get people to Jesus. Because the world needs Jesus and our community needs Jesus. Jesus says your sins are forgiven you. And immediately in verse 21, we read that the scribes and Pharisees react in a way that reveals their hearts. They react with skepticism. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. But I'd like you to notice that they ask two questions in verse 21, which are almost really good questions. If you just scratch out the words, who speaks blasphemies? Take out those three words. Now look at the two questions. Who is this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're not asking questions. They're making accusations in the form of a a couple of questions. They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy and judging him. But if we take those two questions, who is this? Who can forgive sins except God alone? And we ask them prayerfully in humble faith. Those questions will lead us to the truth that Jesus is God, the creator, coming near to forgive our sins and to heal us at the deepest level. But they don't ask it like that. They're accusing to understand their concern. We need to think about this concept of forgiveness and the forgiveness of sins. Everybody say forgiveness. Now, we're all familiar, whether we thought about it deeply or not, we're all familiar with the idea of forgiveness. And I want to talk to you about forgiveness on two different levels. Okay, the horizontal level of our social relationships with one another and the vertical level of our relationship with God. Now, on the horizontal level, if we're going to have any kind of functional relationship for any kind of extended period of time, we're going to have to give and receive forgiveness. Amen. So you might tell a lie about me and I might say something insensitive that hurts your feelings. And then I might come to you and say, I'm sorry, I said that insensitive thing. Will you please forgive me? And you say, I forgive you. And you can say, I'm sorry, I told a lie about you. Will you please forgive me? And I say, I forgive you. And our relationship is healed. And isn't that beautiful? Jesus teaches us we've got to learn how to forgive one another if we're going to live in community. If you're expecting to live in this church community for any period of time without getting hurt, then you should ask yourself, why does the Bible tell Christians in church to forgive each other all the time? Right. 
So you can't have any kind of functional relationship with human beings over time to forgive without forgiveness. There's no future without forgiveness, as Desmond Tutu put it. But now let's switch the scenario. Let's say that I didn't sin against you. I sinned against somebody else. Let's say I sinned against my wife. Instead of being rude and insensitive to you, I'm rude and insensitive to her. And then I come up to you and I say, hey, I was really rude and insensitive to Candace. And I'm really sorry. Would you please forgive me? You see how that's weird? And, and you might respond. I don't know how you would respond in that moment. You probably just look at me funny. But I'm picturing that I say that to Jared. And here's what I think Jared would say. Hey, hey I love you, man. But I don't have the authority to forgive you for that. You need to go talk to Candace. I love you, man, but I don't have the authority. Have you thought about that word authority right, lately? Everybody say authority. Here's a, simp- a couple of simple definitions. Power is the ability to do things. Authority is the right to exercise power. So if somebody walks into on cue with a gun and says, everybody get on the floor and you open the cash register, they've got the power. We've got a leader in that situation, right? They've got the power. But do they have the authority? Do they have the right to do it? No, they don't. But if parents are instructing their children and saying, hey, we need to turn off the TV and brush our teeth and go to bed, that person has authority. They have the right to exercise that power. So we're talking about the power of Jesus. We're also talking about the authority of Jesus. And if I sin against Candace and I ask Jared to forgive me, he's going to say, I don't have a right to forgive you. To pronounce your slate clean. I need to go to the person I sinned against. But now let's think about a whole different level of forgiveness. Instead of thinking about how we're going to clean up our relationships at the social level of community with one another, let's think about the fact that we're all going to die. I almost had you turn to your neighbor and say you're going to die, but I won't do that to you on Thanksgiving week. But it's true. You're you're all going to die unless Jesus comes back first. And come, Lord Jesus. Don't you want Jesus to come back? But if unless Jesus comes back first, we're all going to die. And then we're going to stand before our creator and king to give account for our lives. And when I sin against my wife or you or anybody else, I'm not just sinning against you. I'm also sinning against my creator. I'm sinning against God. Which is why after David sinned grievously against Bathsheba and Uriah and many other people, he wrote a psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, and said, against you only have I sinned, O Lord. And when I stand before God... I am not going to stand before God and be able to present a life that says, look how innocent and perfect I was. Because the truth is, I've sinned many times. There is something deeply bent that is inside us from the very beginning of our lives. A stubborn selfishness, which is beneath the surface most times. But if we're squeezed, it'll come out in a willingness to harm other people. To be unfaithful to God. And that sin is constantly disrupting our lives, alienating ourselves from God and from from our own selves and from one another. That sin is inherently destructive. And if I stand before God as the king and the creator and the judge and he pronounces me guilty and condemned, then I bear in myself that alienation that my sin has wrought. I'm under the wrath of God, which means I'm alienated from God, from myself and from one another which is the worst possible thing. It's what the scripture describes as unquenchable fire and outer darkness. I'm in big trouble unless God, the king, the only one in authority to pronounce judgment or forgiveness, not only over individual sins against you, but over all of my life. 
If God in that moment, instead of condemned, says forgiven, now that changes everything. That's not just about one little relationship being temporarily fixed. That changes my identity. I'm not anymore identified by my worst moments, by my guilt and my shame. I'm free from that. My identity has gone from I'm a sinner to I'm a beloved child of God. If God says forgiven, that changes not only my identity, but also my eternal destiny. If I get what I deserve and if you get what you deserve for your life, we deserve alienation, judgment, wrath. But if God pronounces forgiveness, what we get is eternal life, enjoying fellowship with God and with one another, with resurrected bodies and perfected souls in the presence of God. Doesn't that sound good? But here's the thing. I don't have the right to pronounce that. And you don't have the right to pronounce. There's only one who has the right to pronounce forgiveness at that level. And that's God. Don't take my word for it. God claims this prerogative for himself. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Or listen to this prayer from Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins... Who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to worship you. Or Romans 14, 4. Paul is writing to a group of judgmental Christians who are condemning one another based on stuff that doesn't matter. And he says to them, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. What I'm trying to say here is, There's a horizontal level of forgiveness, but then there's a vertical, eternal level of forgiveness, which is not about a temporary healing of a relationship. It's about our identity and our eternal destiny. And the scribes and the Pharisees are right to recognize only God can forgive at that level. But what they've missed is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is here claiming the authority to do what only God can do. And. Notice this. He's claiming that he doesn't have to go through this system of temple and sacrifices laid out in the Torah. These are Torah people. They love the law of Moses. They want Israel to get its morals right and its liturgy right and its theology right. And they want everybody to go to the temple and confess their sins. And here's Jesus. He is the Lord and giver of life. He's the Lord and the savior of Moses. He's the one who gave the law of Moses, ultimately, and now he's come to fulfill the law of Moses. And he has come as Lord of the Sabbath. He's come saying something greater than the temple was here. He's come as the Lamb of God who's going to put an end to all sacrifices. Jesus is coming and saying something new and better has come. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. That's what they're thinking. They're condemning him. They're accusing him of blasphemy. Verse 22 says Jesus perceives their thoughts. He does the same for us, by the way. He knows what's going on in our hearts. But though he sees the mess in their hearts, he's not mean to them. He's not harsh with them like they are with him and with others. He patiently instructs them. Aren't you glad God does that with us, too? And he teaches by asking a question, which is easier? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, stand, pick up your mat and go home? Now, like a lot of Jesus's questions, that's designed to make you think. At the deepest level, 
it's way easier to heal a person's body than it is to forgive their sins, right? We've got a few medical people in the room looking around. I see a doctor and nurse practitioner, a few, few different medical people. And with modern medical technology, we can heal some diseases, even some forms of paralysis. We can heal some things. But none of us, no mere human being has the authority to say your sins are forgiven in that ultimate sense that Jesus is saying. So in one sense, it's way easier to heal a body. But there's another sense here. If I'm a con man trying to convince you I'm a prophet from God and I walk in here and say your sins are forgiven. How are you going to disprove that? Right. You can't verify it or disprove it. But if I walk in here and say I'm a prophet from God and I can heal anybody that comes up here and you bring in a man who's paralyzed, whom everybody in the room knows or many people at least know has been paralyzed for many years and I don't have any power and I'm going to look like a fool. Right. Because I don't have the power and authority to do that. His question is provoking them. And so he says that you may know that the son of man has authority to forget on earth to forgive sins. He shows His authority to forgive sins by flexing his power to heal. He says, rise up and walk. And now can you imagine what it's like in that crowded house? Okay, let's pretend you're not the paralyzed man anymore. You're not the fringe anymore. You're just a person who's been sitting in this house. And all of a sudden, the dude that just came through the roof on the mat stands up and he starts jumping around and praising God. Everybody starts laughing or crying or yelling. You got goosebumps, don't you? And I can picture in this room which of y'all are crying and which are laughing and which are dancing, right? I'm just like, whoa. And we're all looking at it and we're all amazed. They're all giving glory to God. And after a while, when things start to calm down, they have to think about what Jesus said. He said it so fast and then did this miracle that they may have missed it. But listen back to what he said in verse 24. We're wrestling today with the question, who is Jesus? Who is he to you? Who is he to me? And he says, the son of man has authority on earth. To forgive sins. This story and this section of Luke's gospel are all about the power and authority of Jesus. He teaches with authority. He has authority to heal and cast out demons. Now we see him claiming and exercising the authority to forgive sins. We need to think about this. Our culture tells us that the way to feel empowered is to convince ourselves that we have the power. We read self-help books about it. We sing songs about it. I've had, I've got the power, snap, 1990 in my head all week. Just thinking about that. There's a reason that that has 37 million views on YouTube, and it's mostly the dope beat, but also we would like... To believe that we have the power, right? To save ourselves. But the problem is, we do not have the power to heal our bodies. I mean, I just said medical technology can solve some things. And uh, Chris Hemsworth just dropped a documentary on Disney+. Plus. I haven't watched it yet, but it's called Longevity. It's about science unlocking the secrets to living forever. Spoiler alert, we're not going to live forever. We can heal some things, but heart disease comes calling, doesn't it? Church family, this is real talk. Cancer comes calling. And when we think we're beginning to master nature, a pandemic comes knocking. And we are humbled. 
We can't even solve the physical problems, much less can we deal with the deep spiritual problem that we have sinned against God and we need forgiveness. Nor can we solve the problems of deep-seated division and distrust and corruption that plague society at every level. Which means the only real way to live with hope and joy and empowered people is to recognize that we don't have the power, but Jesus does. He has the authority. And if we live by faith in Jesus, the power and authority of Jesus that are revealed in the resurrection of Jesus get unleashed in our lives and in the world. Jesus says the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice he didn't say I have authority on earth. He said the son of man. And this is the first of 25 times in Luke's gospel in which he refers to himself In this phrase, and I'll have 24 more occasions or other preachers to tell you what it means. I'm not going to go into detail right now, but if you've got your Bible real quick, I invite you to flip back to Daniel chapter seven. There's many texts that provide a background for this phrase. It's used in the Psalms, it's used in Ezekiel. It refers to a human being. It it sometimes refers to a prophet or a servant of the Lord, and it's emphasizing this prophet's human weakness. And dependence upon God. But I think the main text lying behind Jesus' use of the phrase is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The prophet Daniel has a vision, and here's what happens in this vision. If you got there, you can follow along with me. Daniel 7, verse 13 says, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone someone like a son of man. Everybody say, son of man. Daniel saying, I saw a human being. Saw someone like a son of man. But then he says, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that's a frequent image in the Bible, but it's an image that is used only of the Lord God of Israel coming on the clouds of heaven to bring his power and his kingdom to the earth. So it's already raising the question, who is this person Daniel is seeing? Is this a human being or is this God? And as Christians, we can look at it and say, yes. Here's the eternal son of God, begotten of his father before all ages. God from God, light from light, who now has become flesh and dwelt among us for us and for our salvation. Jesus, the the God man, fully human and fully God. Daniel says, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority. That's our key word. Everybody say authority. He was given authority, honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race And nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am God, the creator coming among you, weak and vulnerable as a human being to save you and to establish my eternal kingdom. The miracle here is meant to make us ask, who is this man? And the answer is Jesus, son of God. Son of man, king of kings, ruler of creation. It's made the miracles are here to make us ask, what is the meaning of the death of Jesus? What is the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus? And the answer is God himself has come to bear our sin and all of its consequences and then to defeat death through his resurrection so that anybody who believes in Jesus can experience the total forgiveness and healing and restoration that was experienced by this paralyzed man. As Christians, we have already begun to experience this. If you've experienced God's forgiveness and it's good, can you say, praise the Lord? 
If you've experienced God's healing power in your life, can you say thanks be to God? We have already begun to experience this healing. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, we plead with you today. You can begin to experience his healing and forgiving power now. But even though we've already experienced this healing power, we're still waiting. You remember who if you were here a couple weeks ago, we put a little chart on the screen about the already and the not yet. You remember that Jesus has already inaugurated the kingdom of God, but we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. So while we give thanks for what Jesus has already done, that's Thanksgiving. We're also waiting for what he's about to do. Everybody say, wait. We're waiting. We're hoping. And that's the thought that we need to keep in our minds as we're preparing for the Advent season. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. Don't you find that exciting? Advent is the season of waiting and hope in preparation for Christmas. And as we think about the second coming of Jesus during Advent season, we're saying we have already experienced the forgiveness and the healing of Jesus. But we want more. We want more healing. We want more redemption. So we're learning to live by hope. We're waiting for the Lord, but our waiting is not passive. It is active. Hope is a missional virtue. Friends, I want you to ponder that thought this Advent season. Hope is a missional virtue. That means as we're setting our hope on Jesus, we're drawing strength while we're waiting for him to redeem all things. We're drawing strength from him to bring our friends to Christ in faith. And as we get ready to respond to this text of scripture through one song of worship and then through a big feast in the other room, I want to ask you to look one more time at verse 26. This is where I'm going to end today. It says this, and amazement seized them all. Anybody feeling amazed at the goodness of God this morning? Amazement seized them all and they glorified God. That's what we're about to do with our song and hopefully with our life. It says they were filled with awe, saying we have seen extraordinary things today. The Greek word translated extraordinary here today uh, in, in this verse is uh, a word that only appears here in the New Testament and it's the word from which we get our word paradox. Everybody say paradox. It means something strange and unexpected. And as we wrap up this time of meditation on the scripture, here's the invitation. Come to Jesus in humble faith, trusting in him for yourself and for your friends and come rejoicing in hope because in Christ we've encountered something strange. We've encountered something unexpected. We've encountered the paradox that the creator and judge of the earth has come as savior and friend and healer in the person of Jesus Christ. Please stand in preparation to worship through song. And I'm going to say a prayer over you before we sing. Our father, God, we thank you again for your word. We praise you for your grace, for the forgiveness of sins. And I want to pray that everybody in this room and everybody over in the chapel hearing a sermon in Spanish and everybody watching on a live stream. That you would touch our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't have skepticism that causes us to miss the blessing you want to give us like the scribes and the Pharisees, but that you would give us hearts of humble, desperate, dependent, simple faith. We confess, Jesus, you are the son of God. 
You are the son of man. You are our savior, our king, our healer and our friend. We come to you saying, forgive us, renew us. And we praise you because of the healing power and forgiveness we've already experienced. And because of that for which we yet wait. In Jesus name we pray.